So chapter 4, verse 1, Now Boaz went up to the village gate and sat there, and then along came the guardian, or the kinsman redeemer, whom Boaz had mentioned to Ruth. Boaz said, Come here and sit down, Mr. So-and-so. So he came and sat down. Boaz chose ten of the village leaders and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Now Boaz is doing everything according to law. The law requires ten elders of good standing in the village to preside over any legal matter. He's doing that. He's gathering all together. Then Boaz said to the, the kinsmen, Naomi, who has returned from the region of Moab, is selling the portion of land that belongs to our relative Elimelech. So I am legally informing you, acquire it before those sitting here and before the elders of my people. If you want to exercise your right to redeem it, then do so. But if not, then tell me, so I will know for you so to redeem it, then do so. But if not, then tell me, and I will know, for you possess the first option to redeem it, and I am next in line after you. So Boaz, ten elders as witnesses, and he comes to them and says, Naomi has land. And we talked about this. We now learn that Naomi has land, land from Elimelech. So that probably was left untilled and unprotected and unsowed and harvested over this time. And so this is probably where she's been staying in her home on her own land. But she's too old to plant anything, too old to harvest anything by evidence of the fact that she hasn't been gleaning. And she's too old to invest in this land and hire other people. And so basically, she has to sell the land, which is not good according to law. God doesn't want you to lose the land from your family. But there's no descendants, and she's about ready to die, so it's going to go to a relative. The money from that will allow her to live the rest of her days. And so Boaz is presenting this. So Boaz says, this is sweet. he doesn't say this, but the implication is a sweet deal. You're going to buy the land from Naomi. You take care of her for a few years. She dies, and now it's all yours. There's no descendants to have to give it back to because the law required that when the descendants became old enough, you had to give it back to them. And there's nobody for that. It's his forever. And the year of Jubilee required that every 50 years, all land returns back to previous owners. But because all the previous owners are going to be dead, he'll never even have to give that land up in the 50-year Jubilee. So this is a sweet deal for him. But notice that Boaz says nothing about leveret marriage. He says nothing about redeeming Naomi and providing descendants or Ruth for the matter of that. He just presents a legal option. So he asks, will you do it? The kinsman said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, when you acquire the field for Naomi, you must also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the wife of your deceased relative, in order to preserve the family name by raising up a descendant who will inherit the property. The guardian then replied, then I am unable to redeem it. If you're reading this, you realize this is jacked up, Boaz. <laughs> because he says that you are also required to do a levert marriage in addition to the kinsman redeemer. Now, everybody knows that that's not required. Everybody. This guy was definitely going to know that's not required. And even if he doesn't know, who is also going to know this is not required? Ten elders. I guarantee you there's a good percentage out of the ten that know this. Now you're like, okay, yeah, but we're in the time period of the judges and how often are they really reading the law and knowing it? Yes, but the idea of kinsman redeemer and levert marriages are found outside of the biblical culture and the Israelite culture and every other culture even before the law was ever given. You have to understand that many of the laws that God gave 
and the book of Numbers and Exodus were already existing in the culture. What God did, probably because these laws rooted back to Adam and Eve or Noah or whoever, and what all God was doing was reconfirming many laws, getting rid of laws that were not biblical or slightly altering laws to fit his definition of righteousness. It wasn't like the, brand, the law was brand new to everybody, like nobody had ever thought about not murdering, nobody ever thought about not stealing. So basically what he's doing is altering. This is part of the culture. Every culture has this. So they all know that, yet nobody calls foul. Not one of the elders say, Boaz, it's not right. This is underhanded. Not the, the, the kinsman redeemer says, no, I don't have to do that. If anybody's going to say, I don't have to do that, it's going to be him. Nobody does it, and yet he rejects it. You know he's willing to do it, but now he rejects it. He could easily say, I'm not going to do that because I don't have to. I'm just going to redeem the land. And the question is, how in the world did Boaz get away with this? And this is not legal. It's not required. Well, it's not illegal, but it's not legally required. And nobody's calling him out on this. And here's basically how it works. We've all heard of peer pressure. But most of the time when we talk about peer pressure, we think of people poorly influencing you or your children. But positive peer pressure also exists. You can encourage and champion somebody to do something they wouldn't normally do, and it's totally good for them and beneficial to them in the community. This is what Boaz is doing. He's intentionally leaving this out because if he comes up to the guy and says, Kins and Redeemer and Leverett Marriage, the guy can say no to one and accept the other. But if he presents the one, the guy is automatically going to say yes. Now you put him in the corner. Now you put him in a corner and you say you also have to redeem Naomi. Now the guy is left in a predicament. How does everybody feel about Naomi? They love her. They care for her. They want the best for her. We saw that when she came into the town and everybody celebrated her. How does everybody feel about Ruth? They respect her tremendously. For a foreigner to come into the community and gain that kind of respect that quickly, they all love her and they want the best for her. How does everybody feel about Boaz? They respect him. And he's made it very clear, if you won't do it, then I will. Now all of a sudden you're the guy in a community where everybody knows everybody and your survival is dependent upon everybody in the community because that's how the ancient world works. And you say, I'll take the land for profit, but forget the future of Naomi and Ruth. I'm not willing to do that, even though it's not legally required. And Boaz is standing right there in front of the community saying, I'm willing to do it. How are you going to look in front of everybody? Bad. What's your, this is social suicide. <laughs> The, 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 everybody's going to deal with him and they're not going to like him. But here's the other thing. The Levert marriage was such a huge part of the culture and such a foundational part of the culture because everybody in the ancient Near East valued descendants and inheritances. This is, a, this is something that we've lost in America. The idea of having descendants and inheritances, especially land, 
is woven into the fabric of their worldview, their DNA, their absolute survival. And so they have come to the point where even though a leveret marriage was not required of somebody who was not a brother, it became what was called, um, Frederick Bush calls this a leveret responsibility. That it was so innate into the culture and so valued by the culture and so necessary for the culture that it would, uh, the responsibility would extend to non-brothers as well. And so it could be that this guy is maybe assuming that there is a lever responsibility involved here, but who would it be for? Naomi. And he probably assumed Naomi is way past childbearing age, which she is. So it could be that he said, okay, well, that's kind of assumed that I would do the Leverett marriage for her, but she can't have kids, so it doesn't matter. So what happens is he takes the land. Then when Boaz throws in Ruth, all of a sudden he realized, wait a minute, that's much more risky because Ruth is much younger. And not only will she possibly have a kid, she could have three, four, five, six. And they could become so numerous that not only would it hinder him in saying, I bought this land and now I have to give it for free to the descendant of Ruth who belongs to the Limelech, but if she has multiple kids, it could actually endanger the land inheritance that I have with my own kids. But what he's realizing here is he has to give the land to the descendants of Ruth when they become old enough. And he will not get it, nor will his descendants. And all of a sudden it becomes a riskier proposition. And if he says, I'll do the kinsman redeemer, but not the land, he's still hurting their future. Because even though you would say, well, why doesn't Boaz just marry her? Because the land still won't go to her. The land will go to Mr. So-and-so, Boaz marries her, and she has no inheritance for Elimelech. And remember, it's not just providing descendants. It's not just about providing for Naomi and Ruth. It's also about land. And God distributed the land to certain families, certain tribes, and said that that land is supposed to stay with them forever. And in fact, when a man by the name of Ahab in the book of Kings takes a land illegally from another man and kills him to get it, God punishes that king more harshly for that crime than any other crime that Ahab had ever done because Ahab wasn't just killing somebody, he was killing the future of all the children in that line as well by taking their land. And he took land from a man that he had no right to take because only God can take that land away because God's the one that gave it. And so he put himself in the place of God. Mr. So-and-so cannot do that. He knows that he cannot redeem the family but take their land away from them because that was considered like a blasphemous act because God gave that land. He's stuck where he's shown that he's willing to do something, but he's not willing to go all the way. Boaz is willing to do all of it. And he's going to stand in front of the community and say, I want the prophet, but I'm not going to take care of people. And a village that has learned from Boaz's example that people matter. And they've learned it so well that they have begun to live like that in the time period of the judges. Boaz uses positive peer pressure because he could very well say, I'll do one or not the other. Boaz is not lying to him. Boaz is not deceiving him. He's not cheating him. This is not under the hand table negotiations in a business meeting for profit. He's just laying it all out and he just happened to lay the information a little bit later. But it wasn't like he was hiding anything because everybody already knows about leveret marriages. And so what he does is he intentionally props this person up to force him to do everything or not. And that's when the man says, I'm not willing to do this. 
Now, that's still going to put him in a socially awkward place because he kind of stepped forward a little bit and was like, no, 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 no. But backing out completely is way better than only doing part of it for profit and not taking care of Ruth and Naomi. And all the community will shame him because all the community has come to value taking care of people, especially valuing Ruth and Naomi. And what would it look like for a foreigner like Ruth to sacrifice everything to take care of Naomi and Elimelech, and yet the Israelite, whose blood related, is not willing to take care of his own blood relative. And he looks really bad. Boaz uses public peer pressure to corner this guy and to basically saying all or nothing. Does that make sense? And the man says, I don't want any of it. The guardian, verse 6, said, Then I will unable to redeem it, for I will ruin my own inheritance. In that case, you may exercise my redemption option, for I am unable to redeem it. And Boaz steps up as a kinsman redeemer and says, I'll do it. And all the community is going to love this. And because this man refused to continue the name and the line of Elimelech, God refused to immortalize his name in the Bible. Remember, Manoah's wife did not tell the purpose of Samson to him. Therefore, God left her name out. And now this guy refuses to continue the name and the line and the inheritance of Elimelech. So God refuses to continue his name and his scripture. And that's why we don't know his name. God is 100% behind Boaz as well. Now, this used to be the customary way to finalize a transaction involving the redemption of Israel. A man would remove his sandal and give it to the other party, and this was a legally binding act in Israel. So the guardian said to Boaz, you may acquire it, and he removed his sandal. If you read through the Bible, feet and shoes are a very prominent thing throughout the Bible. And one of the things is that shoes and feet are associated with land. Now remember when Abraham was told by Yahweh, look left and right and before you all this land I was going to give you. And what did Abraham immediately do after that? He began to walk the perimeter of the land, owning it. It's kind of like a dog when you move into a brand new house. It merely goes around the fence. And it begins to mark off your territory. And everywhere your footsteps now belongs to you. And they would do that. Kings, when they sold land off to another king, that king would then walk the entire land. And he would do it probably with the other king as witnesses. You know, like, so that's a very long transaction day. You thought signing your mortgage papers took forever. <laughs> because shoes and feet become associated with claiming land, then it became customary. Now, we have no idea how they got from that to this, but it somewhat makes sense. But then it became, well, I'm taking my shoe off because I'm giving up my right to walk the land and own it, and I'm giving it to you now. Then Boaz said to the leaders and all the people, you are witnesses today that I have acquired from Naomi all that belonged to Limelech, Kilian, and Mahlon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite and the wife of Mahlon as my wife to raise up a descendant who will inherit his property so the name of the deceased might not disappear from among the relatives and from his village. You are witnesses today. Now that right there makes it very clear that Boaz sees this as a levirate marriage. If this is just about redeeming land, he would say, you're all witnesses that I'm taking the land and buying it from Naomi to provide for her. And all, by the way, I also want to marry Ruth. But that's not what he says. He says, I'm inheriting everything that belonged to Elimelech, Kilion, and Mahalon, 
so that I may provide a descendant for them. Boaz is doing what he's not required to do. All the people who were at the gate and the elders replied, We are witnesses. May Yahweh make the woman who is entering your home like Rachel and Leah, both of whom built up the house of Israel. May you prosper in Ephrath and become famous in Bethlehem. May your family become like the family of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah through the descents of Yahweh gives you by his own young woman. Now notice how they're lifting him up. May you be like Rachel and Leah, who they built our entire nation, minus the two maidservants, but the implicate, but they belong to Rachel and Leah. So be, just like Rachel and Leah, who are the mothers of our nation, may your family also be that and keeping it going. You are keeping our nation going. You are building our nation, our people. That's lever marriage right there. And then they go on and say, and may you be like Perez. Now Tamar, back in chapter 38 of Genesis, was a Canaanite woman who wanted to be part of the Abrahamic covenant. But Judah refused to make her a part of Leverett marriage. So she married his first son, Ur, who was evil and God killed him. He then gave his second son, Onan, to Tamar in a Leverett marriage, but Onan refused to impregnate her because he didn't want to give up his inheritance to his brother. So God killed him because that's how seriously God takes not doing a Leverett marriage. Then Judah refused to marry her to his third son, Shelah, assuming that she was cursed like some black widow. So she was so desperate to be part of the Abrahamic covenant. And you know, if you remember, if you go back and read the Jacob story and learn about what Judah and all the brothers were like, the Canaanites must be really jacked up evil if you're desperate to be a part of that family. So she wants to be a part of the Abrahamic covenant so badly that she prostitutes herself in disguise to her brother, or, or sorry, her father-in-law. And then Judah, when he sees her and says that she's pregnant, he wants to kill her because it's okay for him to sleep around, but not her. So he wants to kill her, and she says, the, the father of the baby is a man who owns these. And she holds out a staff and signet ring that he used to pay her because he didn't have his wallet. And then he says this really weird thing, you are more righteous than I am. And you're like, what? You prostituted yourself to your father-in-law. How could that be more righteous? What he meant was, I am part of the Abrahamic line, and I don't even value it. And I didn't do anything to continue on the promises of God. Yet this Canaanite woman, who didn't grow up in it, who doesn't have it, who doesn't really appreciate, actually appreciates it way more than I, and is willing to do anything to be part of the Abrahamic covenant, and willing to do anything to keep the line going. Did she do it in the right way? No. But when has God ever required you to become righteous before you accept Christ? When has God ever required you to become righteous with totally pure motives before you accept the new covenant with Christ? How many of you completely altruistically became a Christian all on just pure 100% altruistic motives? Most people did it because they didn't want to go hell or their life was crappy. God never expects you to be righteous before he redeems you and makes you righteous. He wasn't condoning, nor was the Bible condoning her act what the Bible is condoning and celebrating her for is her righteous desire to be a part of God's kingdom, his covenant, and his plan. And that's what Judah recognized. And so she ends up in the genealogy of Jesus Christ because without her, the line of Judah would have died. So then they turn to Ruth and Boaz and say, may you be like her who produced Perez and continue the line. 
may you be that crucial in a levirate marriage. And it turns out that Ruth is going to become the second woman. Well, technically the third, because the second is Rahab, another foreign woman. So only three foreign women, only three women are ever showing up in the line of Christ, and they're all foreigners. They're saying, may your marriage be a levirate marriage like Tamar, who kept the tribe of Judah going and saved it. They all see this as a levirate marriage. And they celebrate it. And they lift them up. Verse 13, So Boaz married Ruth and had sexual relations with her, and Yahweh enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And the village woman said to Naomi, May Yahweh be praised, because he has not left you without a guardian today, a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous in Israel. He will encourage you and provide for you when you are old. That's kinsman redeemer. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, has given him birth, she is better to you than seven sons, because she saved the line, not just kept it going. Naomi took the child and placed him on her lap, and she became his caregiver. And the neighbor women named him, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. Now, we all know that's not biologically true. But they praise Naomi for having a son born to her because they get this is a levirate marriage to continue the line of Elimelech. So see how this story is really about Elimelech. It's really about Naomi. And so they're saving the line. They named him Obad, and now he became the father of Jesse, David's father. These are the descendants of Perez. So we're going back to Tamar. And Tamar has a son, Perez. And Perez was the father of Hezron. And Hezron was the father of Ram. And Ram was the father of Amanadab. And Amanadab was the father of Nakashan. And Nakashan was the father of Shalom. And Solomon was the father of Boaz. Boaz was the father of Obed. And Obed was the father of Jesse. And Jesse was the father of David. They could never ever know in their lifetime that this is going to lead to David. That God is going to make a covenant with David promising him that he would lift up a descendant one day that would become the Messiah. Now, God didn't promise that Messiah part to David specifically, but later that is developed. She ends up continuing the line of Christ. So this is here, not only because it demonstrates what true covenant obedience to law really looks like, loving your neighbor to the point of sacrificial giving to going over and beyond the law in the time period of the judges, but also because it continues the line of Judah, which will eventually lead to Christ. They could never know that God is using them in such a powerful way, not only to bless other people, but become a blessing to the entire world one day. And just like God came to Abraham and said, I will make you a great nation and give you land so that you can bless the world. Now, Ruth's actions is saving the land and the greatness of the nation so that she can become a blessing to the world through Jesus Christ. And God uses her in an immediate way to take care of Naomi and in a big cosmic kingdom-building way to continue the line of Christ. All because a culturally insignificant woman in the eyes of the culture a nobody in a small little village of Bethlehem, a foreigner that no one would care about, who's never going to amount in a history textbook 
shaping world empires kind of a way, just was faithful to being loving and obedient to God and her neighbor. And God used her to build the most ultimate kingdom that the world has ever seen and ever will see. Boaz, why in the world would a Boaz have a heart for a foreigner? Well, when you go through the Bible and put all the genealogies together, especially the ones in the Gospels, you learn that Rahab was his grandmother. Rahab was a foreigner who some guy in the nation was willing to see past the fact that she was a foreigner and bring her into the covenant of Abraham and marry her and provide descendants, securing her in the Abrahamic covenant. And now that grandson sees another foreigner and sees that value. And so he learns something from his grandfather that foreigners do matter. And foreigners can be a part of the kingdom of God. And so he extended that same act to her. But here's also what's really cool. Boaz becomes a typology for Christ, who is the kinsman redeemer. In fact, when we get to the Second Testament, the authors are going to call Christ our kinsman redeemer because he saves our line from dying out completely in hell. He also saves the land of creation and gives it back to us in the second coming of Jesus Christ when he redeems all of creation. But not only that, what's interesting is Boaz is not 100% Israelite. He's not 100% Jewish. He's part Jewish and part Gentile. Now, they're not using the word Gentile yet, but Gentile is just the Greek word that means the nations, a foreigner, somebody who's not a Jew. So he is the nations, which is always bad in the Bible, and he's part Jewish. And what does he do? Through marriage, he redeems a Jewish woman and a non-Jewish woman and joins them together into the same family that he is a part of and continues the line going on. Now, when you go to the line of Christ, if Rahab and Ruth and Tamar are in the line of Christ, then that means that Jesus wasn't 100% Jewish either. It's biologically impossible. And so Jesus is part Jewish and part Gentile. And he redeems both the Jews and the Gentiles into one body of Christ as our groom who comes for us, the bride, and marries us into a new covenant to promote our line, our future, and our land in this creation. And in that way, Boaz becomes a big-time typology of Jesus Christ, of a man who's willing to go over and beyond the law and put his desires away to take care of other people to continue lines. And Jesus himself was willing to go over and beyond the law and say, not my will be done, but your will done, in order to redeem and continue the line of us. And yet Jesus is someone that we will never be able to accomplish that status. The fact that he's so well paralleled to Boaz shows this is the way you live Christ out in your life. This is the way that you live Christ out in your life. It doesn't have to be grand. It doesn't have to be amazing. Maybe God will use you in those ways. But really the way that you live your life out like Christ is, is just in your life, in your way to do life, your mundane life, and you just look out for other people. And you're willing to go over and beyond the law and not just say, well, I'm only going to do what I have to, or God never said I had to do that, or check, 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 check. You just see people in need and you meet those needs and you let God turn it into something big. And he will. 
either in your lifetime or beyond your lifetime. But you will have a huge impact. And so this is the amazing story of Ruth, who is willing to save the line of Elimelech, because that's what really matters. So in conclusion, Ruth becomes the transition from the judges into the kings. So when we get to the book of 1 Samuel, we're going to see that we're going to be moving out of the time period of the judges, which is a dark, evil time period where local leaders rule, to a time period where God's going to lift up a national king monarchy in order to govern the land and to deliver them from the hands of their enemies like all the judges were supposed to do. And so not only do we see Ruth and Boaz and Naomi becoming a transition from the darkness of judges morally into the righteous acts of Samuel and David and all of them, but we also see a transition from the political makeup of a nation of judges into a political makeup of a single king. This leading to David is answering the question of, in those days Israel had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And Ruth accomplishes this in two ways, because we told you that the real king that the Bible has in mind is not David, but God. God is the king. And by Ruth being loving and sacrificial and Boaz being obedient to the law, they are making God the king of this town of Bethlehem. And answering that question, if Israel only had a king, they would be moral. But in a historical sense, it also looks forward to David. Because even though David will be a scumbag in a lot of righteous acts, <laughs> unrighteous acts, he will also be a man after God's own heart who will try to do the right thing and want to do the right thing, and, and God will use it in a powerful way. And she is biologically and historically the transition into that king who will deliver Israel into a new era of peace. But then, as I mentioned before, she also is the ultimate transition into what it ultimately means for Israel to have a king, and that is Jesus Christ. And in this way, Ruth becomes a huge transitional book from one era into the next. And so just like Deuteronomy transfer us from the land, the time period of the patriarchs and the Torah into the time period of being in the land with the judges, now we're transitioning into another time period of into a monarchy and a national state. And we're going to go from tribal local things into national kingships and monarchies and all that kind of stuff. And so this serves as another transition in that sense. Yahweh, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you for the beauty of your word. Not only are you willing to take us into the depths of darkness and sin and evil, depravity and rebellion to make a very important point to us, but you also are a good God who's willing to lift us to the heights of chesed and to show us the beauty of true love and true marriage to show us what you're like, and what we can be. And I pray that we would see Ruth and Boaz and Naomi as everyday normal people with very little cultural power and money and influence. And yet God uses them in a very powerful way. Let this be a lesson to us that great influence is not done through lots of money and power and influence, though you can use that because you can use anything. But great influence is done through humble characters that die to themselves and love others. And no matter how little they have, you are the God of the universe that can turn anything into the most powerful things the world has ever seen.
In Jesus' name, amen.